Hello. Welcome to this episode of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. <clears throat> I'm your host, D.P. Lyle. Today I want to talk about the autopsy. This is obviously a critical portion of any um, forensic investigation into any uh, unknown death or any criminal proceeding, and it will... Um, obviously impact your stories because uh, so much can happen at the autopsy that will determine the who, when, where, and how. An autopsy is a scientific uh, procedure, and it should be viewed as that. It should be conducted as that. Autopsy simply means a self-look. Auto means self, and opsy comes from optic, uh, the same Latin root as optic, um, and so it means a self-look. It means looking at yourself. And so an autopsy is a person looking at themselves. Now, now its purpose <coughs> is to examine the corpse and look for evidence of the cause and manner and time of death and things like that. And is done by examining the body, by dissecting and doing microscopic examinations, by doing toxicological testing, blood testing, whatever else that the medical examiner might deem necessary for him to make the determinations that he must make. Now, one of the big questions that comes up that I often get from writers and I see out there on the, on the Internet is that, when is an autopsy done? What happens? Um, is it done immediately? Does it take a month? What, what's going on here? Well, it may be done immediately, and it may take several days, and it may indeed take weeks and months to do. It depends upon the location, number one. In other words, in a small jurisdiction, a small town like Mayberry, you know, it may take a while. In a large city, it may also take a while because they have a backlog. You know, they have bodies stacked up at the Morgan L.A., and it takes time to get through those because there's so many hours in the day. Uh, on the other side of the coin, may, it may be that it's done immediately because they have a big enough staff, they have a small enough schedule that they can get to it. And in a small town, by also, it may be done fairly quickly because what's the undertaker or pathologist or whoever is going to do it, the procedure, um, what else have they got to do? They don't have much going on. Um, who does these? I mean, obviously, a forensic pathologist is the one. Someone board certified in forensic pathology would be, would be the ideal situation, but often it falls to the clinical pathologist, which we'll talk about in a minute, is the, the pathologist at the local hospital. In many small towns, it's the undertaker, and he may even be the coroner, or he may be the coroner's designated autopsy guy, if you will. Other things that can impact this is that if they don't have someone locally who can do it, they may send the, the, the body away for autopsy to a state lab or a county lab or, a, or a, a, some other lab that is more sophisticated and more equipped and able to do this better or at all. And so this may delay things because you got to package up and ship the body. You got to get it there. They got to get it in their queue and then they got to get it done. So a lot of things impact when an autopsy is going to be done. Now, this can be used in your story. If you don't want the cause and the manner of death found out early on in the story, you want it delayed a day or two, you can easily do this, whether if you're in a large town or you're in a small town. You can do that. So 
I mentioned a clinical uh, pathologist and forensic pathologist. What's the difference here? Well, they both go to medical school and they both train in a residency in pathology, so they come out as pathologists. A clinical pathologist works in a hospital usually, and he performs the medical autopsies. Now, these are determined the cause of death and to search for any other diseases and things like that. You know, that Uncle Joe, yeah, he died of a heart attack, or Aunt June, yes, she died of pneumonia. Okay, fine. Uh, he does all that. He may also run the lab or not. It depends. It varies from place to place, but he may be in charge of the medical lab at the hospital. Usually the pathologist is because they oversee all the, all the lab testing. Now, a forensic pathologist has to do with pathology through the view of the law. Now, a forensic pathologist usually takes a couple of more years of training after he finishes the clinical pathological uh, studies. So it's a couple of extra years. And so this is done, like I said, from a legal point of view. So a forensic autopsy, he's looking at the cause, the manner, and the time of death. These are critical things in any investigation. So that's what a forensic pathologist does. So a forensic autopsy is an autopsy done for the purpose of the law. And what is it looking for? Well, it's looking for the cause of death. In other words, what illness or injury or, or, or activity led to the death of this person? Uh, what is the mechanism of death? And what's the physiological derangement? In other words, you may say that someone died of a stroke. <clears throat> That's the cause of death. But that stroke could be due to atherosclerosis in the arteries that supply blood to the brain. We call that an ischemic stroke. Ischemic meaning lack of blood supplied to a tissue. Or it could have come from a, a clot that was thrown from the heart in someone who had atrial fibrillation. We call this an embolic stroke. An embolus is something that travels through the bloodstream and sticks somewhere. In this case, the embolus would come from the heart and go up the carotid arteries into the brain and cause a stroke. So the death, the cause of death is a stroke, but the mechanism can be atherosclerotic. It can be embolic. And this can be true of almost any type of death that, that you that you come up with, that there is a there are multiple physiological reasons for it. I don't want to get too deeply in that. And the next thing he'll determine in the forensic uh, autopsy is what is the manner of death? Was this death natural? In other words, a heart attack or a stroke or something? Was it accidental? You know, fell off a roof or uh, electrocuted themselves or, or was an automobile accident? Was it suicidal? Did the person intend to take their own life or was it homicidal? So the basic answer is by whose hand and for what purpose did this death occur? And that's what the forensic pathologist must determine. This is critical. And I think you can see that because if it's not, it's not labeled a homicide, then the police aren't going to get involved with, with a few exceptions, some suicides and some accidental deaths, particularly if they take place in a workplace. What is the time of death. The next, next thing he will determine is the time of death because that's critical in any case. It blows up alibis. It helps. It substantiates or refutes witness statements. If that wasn't possible or this person wasn't there, the person was in another state at the time the person died, they didn't kill the person, 
unless they had an alibi and they were really kind of finagling things and they really were present. They just made it look like they were somewhere else. You see the storytelling opportunities here. So, but the time of death is critical. We'll talk about that in another podcast. So who gets autopsy? I mean, the medical examiner at the end of the day or whoever's doing the autopsy at the end of the day has their discretion if they're going to do an autopsy or not. It's not, it's not all or nothing. There's gradations here. They decide not only whether they're going to do it or not, but how much are they going to do. Sometimes they just do a head examination, sometimes just a body examination, sometimes just an external examination. They don't do any dissection at all. The medical examiner or coroner will decide what they, they need in order to um, determine those things they need to determine, the cause, manner, and time of death. And they will do what is necessary. But remember, they have budget restraints. And they're not going to do a full tilt uh, autopsy with toxicological and blood testing and DNA testing and all that stuff on every case that lands on their table. They're just not going to do it. They can't afford it. And it's particularly in small jurisdictions. I think you can see the storytelling implications here. You know, Floyd the barber in Mayberry could be the coroner. He could be in charge of the autopsies. And he could say, I'm not, I got hair to cut. I'm not going to do it today. Okay. And so I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say, hey, look, he died of a heart attack. He was found dead in his bed. And let it go at that. Happens all the time. So who gets autopsy? Well, violent deaths, of course, you know, whether they're accidents, homicides, or suicides, those usually get looked at. Deaths in a workplace, I talked about that earlier, simply because workplace safety comes into play. Was there some workplace toxin that killed this person? Was there some problem with safety standards that caused this person to die at the workplace? All of these things are important. It's also done in any deaths that are suspicious, sudden, or unexpected. In other words, if a 25-year-old is found dead, yeah, it's a little suspicious, and it's a little sudden, and it's a little unexpected because you don't expect 25-year-old people just to die unless it's an accident or a gunshot wound or something like that. But if there's no obvious reason, then an autopsy is going to be done. Obviously, anybody who dies in police custody is going to get an autopsy, especially in this day and age. Uh, deaths that are unattended by a physician or that occur within 24 hours of admission to the hospital or if someone comes in the hospital unconscious and never regains consciousness, these often will become what we call coroner's cases and the coroner will be involved. Now that said, you know, I've practiced cardiology for, for five decades now and I've signed my share of death certificates and if I've got an 82-year-old guy who who was who died in his sleep and you know and i get a call from the coroner's office will you sign the death certificate of course i will because joe had terrible heart disease and lung disease and diabetes you know and, and him dying in his sleep was not that big of a deal but do i actually know that joe wasn't hitting the head with a skillet i don't but we sign those death certificates because it's common sense and uh, obviously in the hospital and someone's in the hospital and they're there and they have a rocky course and they end up dying. Well, we've been attending them for a couple of weeks in the hospital. We know, we know what the cause of death is and we know how to sign a death certificate. But if there's any question whatsoever, it becomes a coroner's case and the coroner will get involved. Also, if there's any uh, medical or surgical procedures going on uh, and the person dies during one of those, then an autopsy is performed. Same way with abortions. Same thing. The body is, uh, it, an autopsy is usually done to make sure that it was 
what happened? Was it a, a medical misadventure? Was it bad luck? Was it just one of those things? But all these things need to be looked at with an autopsy. Obviously, if a body is found, uh, whether known or unidentified, so a body's found laying on the side of the road, well, they're going to do an autopsy to find out what the cause of death was. You know, was this person hit by a car? Was it a gunshot wound where they strangled and then tossed out of a car here? So you see all the, the implications, not only in real life, but in stories that, that, that this can bring up. So identifying and autopsying an, un, an unknown body is, is critically important. Um, also, they usually do it before a body is cremated or buried at sea because you only get one shot at this. And once it's created or gone, uh, uh, sleeping with the fishes, you don't get a second shot at this. So usually an autopsy will be uh, ordered and done then. And then, of course, the court can order an autopsy being done. The medical examiner or coroner himself can also do that. Remember, they have subpoena power. They can decide what, when, where, and how. They have a really a lot of power, and the courts tend to back them up very strongly on this. So he may just decide, look, I need an autopsy in order to do what I need to do. So what's going to happen in the autopsy room? Well, the first thing they're going to do is identify the person. I mean, this is critically important. If you don't know the person and you're doing an autopsy, you know, you could make it Jane Doe number number 10. You could do that, and you would if you don't know yet. But you do everything you can to identify the person. Because if you have an autopsy done, and it turns out that a case goes to trial, and then later they find out, well, you autopsied the wrong person. This is not the person we're talking about here. So you have to identify who you're doing your procedure on before you even start, if at all possible. That's not always possible. And you do that by, you know, most people are known. I mean, most deaths, you know who the victim is. But again, in the case of a body tossed on the side of the road, you may not. And so you start looking for things. How can I identify this person? Well, you photograph the body, both clothed and unclothed, because the clothing and all of that may be critical in identifying or even determining what happened, reconstructing the crime because of blood spatter and, and dirt and grime and scrape marks on the clothing itself. So photographing them clothed and then, of course, unclothed, because you want to look at every bit of, of the individual to see what see what kind of trauma, see what kind of other things you can find on the body externally that will help the medical examiner determine the cause and manner of death. Now, during this process, trace evidence is removed. It's picked off the clothes, hair and fiber and dirt and, and stains that look like blood are sampled. Um, if there's semen in the clothing, you know, that is sampled. All of these things, all of this evidence is removed and the clothing is removed and usually it's put on a pla the body's put on a plastic bag, a plastic sheet, so that everything that shakes off the body can be collected and the body's lifted to the table. All the clothing and the and the other stuff that might have fallen off the body is taken to another room and spread out and they start looking for things. Again, hair and fibers and all this. I mean there's been cases solved by cat hair. Well it was chased there's a famous one called Snowball the Cat. You can look it up. But the actually cat hair helped solve the crime amazing but it was found because well it was on the clothing okay now they will measure and weigh the body so you need to know exactly how tall how much this person weighs because that may impact like witness statements you know i saw a six foot three uh guy running uh, down the street he was muscular he had on yada 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 well, the body you're autopsying, 
autopsying is five foot four, and so it's not the guy that they were they saw running down the street being chased by somebody. <laughs> this is another issue. So all of those things are important. They will they will uh, X-ray the body, and and this is almost universal. And the reason is is that things happen that you can't really see externally. Even gunshot wounds can be like in the scalp or something, and you don't see them, or they can be in uh, in the midst of other trauma. You know, a person that is that is shot and then thrown off a building, or drugged behind a car, or are tossed in the water, or are damaged by predators when the body's tossed in the in the woods somewhere. All of these things, you may not be able to see the gunshot entry wound, and so you X-ray the person and you look for things. There may be broken tips of knives. There may be um, there may be bullets in there. There may be. Uh, other things that are helpful like what well let's say you find out the person has a pacemaker which you ought to be able to see on the external exam but maybe not uh and the person's had a hip replacement again you would look for surgical scars and stuff and you might already know that but you might not well how does that help well these devices have serial numbers and so if you have an unknown corpse that you're autopsy autopsying and you find a pacemaker you remove that pacemaker you literally look up the manufacturer and the 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 product number and you can tell when what hospital the person was in what their name was what surgeon did it a cardiologist did it whatever and and bang now you've got the person identified same way with with hip and other bioprostheses so finding these things bullets when they enter the body someone can get shot in the chest but the bullet may end up down by the bladder how does that happen well it can hit a rib or or the spinal column and it can bounce and deflect and it can go in any direction and that's why in the emergency room when you get someone who's shot say in the left chest you you don't just look at the chest you look at the abdomen you look everywhere is there bleeding down there did this bullet bounce off the spinal column, penetrate the diaphragm, you know, wipe out a kidney, and end up laying in the in the bottom bottom of the abdominal cavity? Absolutely, this happens, and it's not all that rare. So, recovering the bullet then allows to firearms examinations to go and examine that bullet. Uh, this would be a great part in your story, where at first it looks like this, but really it turns out, well, we didn't find the bullet. Well, you didn't do a complete autopsy. My guy did, and here it is. And now we've got the bullet, and now we can match it back to the gun that, guess what, old Joe owns. So Joe's got some explaining to do. Once, Then they will do the full external examination of the body. And this means they will look at things like surgical scars and tattoos and, and blemishes like uh, warts and port wine stains and all of these things that are individualizing. They will look for, uh, for evidence of trauma, previous fractures, previous burn injuries or, 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 or healed wounds of any kind. Um, so the external examination of the body is very important. If they find tattoos or, or birthmarks and stuff, all these things are photographed, especially in someone where they don't know the identity of the person because all of these things can help identify someone. You see it all the time on the news where someone has a, a specific tattoo. It gets photographed. It gets sent out by the media, and somebody says, wait a minute, I know her. I know that tattoo. And so now you've identified the person, or at least gives you a direction to look to prove that person's identity, which, as I said earlier, is critically important. 
then they will move to dissecting the body. And this is where they actually open the body up and rummage around in there and do all the things that they do. And, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Then they will obtain things like blood, uh, maybe from the heart for uh, toxicological testing, maybe from the gallbladder, maybe from the inside the eye. The eye, uh, the vitreous humor, the liquid part inside the eye, often stores different toxins and chemicals and alcohol and things like this, so those can be determined. Um, they will uh, look at the size and the weight of the liver and the heart and the and all the other internal organs because these may give indications for other disease processes that were going on. So the person that died of a methamphetamine overdose, well, if they had severe heart disease or evidence of severe hypertension, that would obviously make them at greater risk of dying. So how much did the natural problems they have weigh into the death and how much did the ingestion of, of an amphetamine way into the death. This could be critical in your story into who gets blamed for what. So all of these things are, are looked at as they examine the body. Then they will, as I said, they will obtain blood. They will obtain tissues from the liver and from different places to do toxicological testing and, and serolo serological testing and maybe DNA testing. So all of these things are removed at this time. So once the coroner, medical examiner, whoever, gets all of this stuff together, the body's been identified, it's been autopsied, all the stuff has been collected. He's waited for the serology reports and the toxicology and the DNA and the firearms examinations, and he's waited for all of this stuff to come together. And now he's going to file his official report. Now each pathologist has their own methods for doing this, but in general, the autopsy report will include the external examination, all the stuff we talked about, a description of the person, the size, the weight, tattoos, birthmarks, all this stuff, trauma, evidence of injuries, things like this. It will, it will, if there is evidence of in injuries or previous surgical adventures or whatever, all of this will be included in the report there. Then they will go to the internal examination and they will talk about the brain and the spinal cord and, and the chest, all the organs in there, the abdomen and the pelvis, uh, everything that is taken there um, will be addressed during this report. Then the results of the toxicological examinations, you know, what, what was found? Was there alcohol? If so, how much? Were well, amphetamines found? If so, how much? How much? Were other toxins found? If so, how much? Uh, and let's say the person is taking digitalis or, or some other cardiac medication. Was their level toxically high? Could this have contributed to their death? Obviously, the classic example and the very common example, unfortunately, is someone has a very high alcohol level and they're killed in a car accident. How much did the alcohol play in the accident? You know, they run into a pole. Was it alcohol or were they texting? You know, it makes a difference. Um, so if the alcohol level is tiny, very small, then it probably did not contribute much to the, to the accident. But if it was very high, say three times the legal limit, now, sure, everything's impaired and it could play into the accident. This may affect a lot of things. And so um, it may affect insurance even. Insurance may not pay uh, for deaths that occur with DUIs. Uh, and so you can see how this becomes critically important. Um, 
they would look at all the other laboratory tests that they did. Like I said, you know, all the trace evidence and, and the ballistics and the, the the pharmacology and all the things that they have done. They will, he will put all of this data together in order to come up with his final determination, which is his opinion. And his opinion will state, what is the cause of death? What killed this person? What is the mechanism and manner of death? Who did this by whose hand and why? Uh, all of these things are very, very important because they will dictate what happens next. If it's a natural death, eh, the police aren't going to get involved. If it's suicidal, they're probably not going to get involved. If it's accidental, 99 out of 100 times, they're not going to get involved. But if it's homicidal, then they're going to go full tilt boogie. And so the autopsy report, the opinion of the medical examiner, is critical to where things go next. And there is disagreement often in this. You will find, you see this all the time on TV and in shows where the true crime shows where the, uh, the prosecution will have its expert witness, its forensic pathologist, who says, I believe she was strangled. And the second will come along and say there was no evidence of that whatsoever. Okay, so we've got an argument going here. The first pathologist may say, yeah, well, you were looking at it externally and you didn't see external bruising. But I dissected the strap muscles. Now, these are the muscles along the neck. If you look in the mirror and turn your head, you see those muscles pop out on each side. They're how you turn your head. Sometimes in strangulation, the bleeding is deep into those muscles and it does not make it to the surface. In other words, the bruising happens deep and not superficially. Usually it's both but not always. And so if the first guy, if the second guy who did the autopsy did not open those muscles up and look and see, but the other guy did and say, wait a minute, see, this is proof that there was strangulation involved. So this was not an accidental death. This was not a natural death. This was a strangulation death. And so you get the dueling experts deciding uh, guilt <laughs> or innocence of someone. So I think you can see that the autopsy has been around a long, long time. I mean, thousands of years, but really only in modern times has it really come to the fore. And I, I hope this helps you understand what it's all about, what the purpose of the autopsy is, who does it, when they do it, why they do it, and how they do it, and how they use the information that is gleaned from this to impact everything that happens in this scenario. And I think you can see as you think about this, maybe you'll think about your story, how many places along the way from identifying the body to identifying a toxin to doing a, a complete autopsy or a partial autopsy or doing an autopsy at all, how this will impact your story and how it unfolds. Maybe no autopsy is done whatsoever because they said, well, you know, Uncle Joe is 82 years old and he died in his sleep. And well, okay, fine. That happens all the time. As I said, I've signed death certificates that way. But what if somebody comes along and says, no, wait a minute now. Joe was actually in pretty good health, and, and he was not the kind of guy who was going to overdose or do anything stupid like that. Um, and so why, what happened to Joe? We don't believe this. So the body's now exhumed and an autopsy's done. And what if they find bruising on the inside of the mouth like someone has pressed a pillow over his face and smothered him? Or what if they find an excess of one of his medications, a large excess? What if they find 
undissolved pills of his digitalis, about eight of them in his body. Who gave them to him? Did he swallow himself? Did someone give it to him? And this happens all the time. Is some foreign substance involved? Is there fentanyl in his body? Why would that be there? Joe didn't wasn't taking fentanyl. He wasn't in pain. He didn't have terminal cancer or something like that. He wasn't on fentanyl. So how did that get in his body? Now all of these questions are raised because the body was exhumed and a complete autopsy was done. So the storytelling possibilities around the autopsy are, are, are fantastic. Uh, so use that. Now, if you want to know more about this, there's some show notes that will obviously be on my, on, my, on my website, on my blog. Um, and you can also go to, to my books, Forensics for Dummies and How Done It Forensics, if you want to know a whole lot more about the autopsy. Uh, it's covered very deeply in both of those books. So we've been talking autopsy here. This is D.P. Lyle, and this is Criminal Mischief, the art and science of crime fiction. So until next time.